Hello and welcome to Rooted in Resilience, the podcast where we discuss this thing called resilience, how we define it, how it shows up in our lives, or if that word has a place in it at all, how it affects not only the Boston College community, but also our surrounding global one. Today, we are talking to Dr. Kira Malika Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a professor of art history and African and African diaspora studies at Boston College. She completed her BA in Africana studies at Stanford University and received her master's in religion and a PhD in African and African American studies at Harvard University. Her research is focused in Africana religions, sacred arts and material culture, race, religion, and visual culture, and ritual healing traditions in the Black Atlantic. We are so excited to talk to her today about resilience. Well, hello, Dr. Daniels. We're super excited to have you on our podcast today, and thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. A pleasure to join you all. So usually we start our podcast by asking our guests to define resilience for themselves, but in light of the article that you sent us beforehand um, and being able to skim through that, we kind of have... um, mixed up the question order. So we would like to start with just asking you to tell us a little bit more about your research, why it matters, and what insights it gives to your understanding of resilience and your understanding of resilience specifically within your Haitian and Haitian American community. Thank you for that question. And I'm really grateful that I um, was able to share this article with you that you all amazingly had time to skim before our conversation. Um, I am a scholar of African and African diaspora religions and sacred arts. And my research focuses on ritual objects used in healing ceremonies, specifically in Haiti and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I conduct my field research. Um, I became interested in this topic for a few different reasons. Reasons, but to be brief, I grew up with a really vibrant art uh, home. My parents are collectors informally, not fancy auction folks, um, but they love to collect art where they travel. And I grew up with beautiful Haitian and African American and West African art in my household. And when I took my first African art history class, I was really blown away because I learned that so many of these things that I had seen in museums, so many of these objects or masks had ritual meaning had purpose. And I had always been interested in religion. When I was little, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I wanted to climb in pyramids and learn about, you know, the ancients. And uh, I mentioned that I'm of Haitian descent here in part because when I became, I think, interested in religion and Haiti, it was in part because I realized, oh, we have a really rich religious heritage as well. And it was in college that I felt like there was an opportunity to meld these interests in the arts and in religion. So I'm interested in thinking about the ways that religious objects allow us to understand the relationship that people have to the divine world. Because the reality is a lot of healers will explain that medicinal plants, of course, play a central role in healing ceremonies, but that unless the ancestors or the spirits are present, 
to diagnose problems, to provide insight into a condition or an illness, they will not be able to bless and sanctify the plants and ultimately a person will not be able to come to full sense of healing, really in the sense of holistic healing and wellness. And so because of that, they explain that these ritual art objects like ritual rattles, sacred bundles, divine mirrors, and mystic pots serve as conduits, if you will, mediators between the human world and the divine world so that the healing ceremony can take place with greatest efficacy. So that's a little bit about my research. And with regards to resilience, I, again, am grateful that you all have taken the time to look through this article because it's something that we as Haitians and Haitian Americans struggle with to a certain extent. Haiti is often defined as a resilient country, people who are extremely resilient. And this is typically, you know, something that we consider to be a compliment, you know, and there are a lot of Haitians and Haitian Americans who consider that to be, you know, a sign of our strength. But this amazing article by Ryan Jiha, I think, underscores what many other Haitian and Haitian scholar, Haitian American scholars highlight, which is that there are ways that talking about Haitian resiliency removes a sense of accountability for why Haiti is in the state that it currently is, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about the fact that Haiti is the first black republic established in the Western hemisphere, the only nation to free itself of slavery and permanently ban and abolish slavery in the world in 1804 when it gains its independence from France. Afterwards, France demands reparations, not because they were wronged, right? But because in their mind, they've lost so much money from holding enslaved peoples in captive uh, in captivity. And so $21 billion was demanded of Haiti, which we paid off in full with interest. But to do so, we had to borrow money from nations that instilled an embargo on us, right? And so when we talk about, oh, Haitians are resilient, it almost suggests that we don't feel pain mm. or that we wished, you know, to be this way as opposed to recognizing the sort of historical accountability that we must ask of Western nations. So I say all of that to say that I think, you know, as a Haitian American woman, I have a more complicated relationship with the term resilience, particularly in this context. But I do feel comfortable thinking about longevity mm. and thinking about what it means to endure despite all odds and what it means to prioritize wellness and wholeness even in the face of tremendous adversity, as we know Haiti continues to deal with in this you know, 21st century context. Yeah. That's really great. I feel like I've learned so much, but um, just quick kind of follow-up question, but it was originally our first question. Uh, in light of all of that, how do you define resilience? And is there like a word that you would rather use instead of resilience? I think that I feel comfortable using resilience in very certain contexts, you know? Um, this is how I feel about the term syncretism. Um, and I know, Franny, you mentioned that you're in theology, so you're probably, you know, you've probably heard of this term. Syncretism is a term that is usually used to describe African and African diasporic religions as a blending of African religions, Catholic European traditions, and uh, Taino indigenous religions. And I don't like using the term because it's typically used syncretic religions to talk about people of color religions, basically, especially in the African context, African diaspora context, and Latinx context. 
context. Um, so if we talked about Christianity as being syncretic, I wouldn't have a problem, right? Because Christianity, in fact, Jesus was probably born in August, not December, but because of the winter solstice, the you know ancient Romans were like, well, let's try to align this with other things that are being celebrated. You know, So if we were to talk about all religions in syncretic, I don't think I'd have a problem with it. Similarly with resilience, I'm not opposed to it in, in theory, right? And in abstract form, I think it can be a helpful term. But I think in the context of talking about Haiti, I would be more comfortable talking about terms like longevity, you know, mm -hmm. endurance, um, and thinking about, again, what it means to imagine different possibilities, different futures, um, what it means to thrive. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful to think about, because I think going into this conversation, before you had sent our article and having talked to one previous professor, I had originally thought of resilience as a catch-all term that anybody can use and it describes the way that we endure and move through hardship in our life. And I didn't realize beforehand the the at-leastness of it, the sympathy within it, the moving aside everything. I think the article talks about making invisible the history that came before it that has caused people to have to be resilient in some sort of way. So thank you for shedding light on that. I think that's really important to think about. Absolutely. Thank you for being willing to engage with it. I know the title is Rooted in Resilience. So like <laughs> I said, I'm appreciative of the you know chance to engage here and, and think complexly. Again, I don't think it needs to be thrown out with the bathwater, but I do think context matters. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think your experience and your research sheds beautiful light on that and this article sheds a beautiful light on that so maybe even we can post the article on our website too and give there into you so that other people can read that also thank you that'd be great um our good friend jesse who was not able to be with us on the podcast today he was a philosophy major as an undergrad so he always likes to throw in a philosophical question and so his philosophical question of the day for you is what is art and how do you define ritual? Ooh, marvelous questions. <laughs> um, and marvelous in part because, you know, I teach art history classes and religion classes at BC or theology courses that are all grounded in African and African diasporic religious traditions and art traditions. And it's actually an exercise that I do with my students to talk about what is art. You know, in the Western world, we think about art as aesthetic forms. We think about it as modes and methods of communication. We think about it as political statements or signs of religious devotion. But probably most importantly, we think about art in the Western context as being non-utilitarian, right? Mm -hmm. Something that is visually powerful, perhaps pretty and beautiful, perhaps ugly and disturbing, but something that is non-utilitarian. That's very different than African and Africana conceptions of mm -hmm. art. You know, in Bamana nations of Mali, art is something that attracts your attention. It focuses your eye, it directs your thoughts. Among phone nations in Benin, uh, the term is alonuzo, which means something made by hand, really bringing into clarity this technique. In uh, Yoruba nations of Nigeria, ona is the term that is uh, describing objects or artworks or profession of creators. Among Ewe notions, nations of Togo and Ghana, Adanu means art, technique, or ornamentation. And I, I introduce my students to all of these different terms and complexities to know, you know, first of all, art doesn't have one meaning. 
right? Mm -hmm. In any cultural context, you know, you could ask 10 people and get 10 completely different definitions in the United States right here at BC. Um, but we have sort of broader understandings of what art means to us as, you know, various cultures. Whereas um, it's important to recognize the sort of nuances that emerge. And I would say in a lot of African and African diaspora contexts, art is functional. It has a meaning, it has a purpose, you know, so you can have, you know, stools of Akan nations in Ghana that serve as shrines, as, you know, emblems of power, but that are, you know, uh, used in ceremony as well. You can talk about Minkisi of Congo that are sacred art objects used for healing purposes. Um, so, you know, there's an understanding, you know, these ritual flags that I have behind me that our podcast listeners can't see. But these uh -huh. ritual flags of Haiti, you know, are, are danced in ceremony during initiations. And so, you know, I think the greatest takeaway that I love for my students, well, I have a lot, but one of the takeaways I want my students to have in my art history classes of Africa and the African diaspora is that art is not simply utilitarian. It is something to provoke, it is something to inspire, it is something to build community. And I'm especially interested in the art that connects you with the divine world, the sacred arts. Ritual is another beautiful and complex concept with a lot of different definitions, but I would say that it is a repeated practice of something that has a sacred quality in the context that I'm thinking about it. You know, we have rituals like brushing our teeth that are secular, of course, but mm -hmm. in the context that I'm interested in it, in religious studies and theology, ritual is a repeated practice of something that is sacred, that connects you to community and that connects you to the divine. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and so I just wanted to ask, how do you see the relationship between resilience, art, and healing? So art and healing is at the center of my research in part because I think uh, it's such a beautiful thing to encounter art objects that are functional and used in the context of healing ceremonies. Um, one example is Pakit Kongo. Pakit Kongo are Haitian sacred healing bundles that are used in a few different contexts. In one context, they're used in initiation ceremonies. When somebody is initiated as a priest or a priestess, an unga or a mambo, they are made Pakit Kongo, these sacred healing bundles that are each connected to a particular divinity, a particular spirit that walks with them on their journey. And they're filled with, you know, mystic powders and leaves and herbs and medicines. Um, but they are consecrated by priests and it's made by the person being initiated themselves with teachers in the room, in the in their temple, you know, and so you are literally fashioning your own divine bundles that will walk with you, that will guide you on your path and that you will eventually place on your altar. Um, but in the context of other types of healing ceremonies, um, Pakitungo can be made for an individual who's dealing with various problems, especially pertaining to relationships, whether that means a work relationship, a family dynamic, or a love relationship. And so these sacred healing bundles are um, used in this context. So in terms of art and healing, I think they're deeply integrated in a lot of cultures and societies. You know, it's not just African and African diasporic communities. Um, you know, when you think about certain meditative practices, you know, for instance, if we think about South Asian contexts, when we think about um, mandalas that are made in Buddhist traditions of Southeast Asia, um, these are meditative practices. And so there's a, a way in which that can bring a sort of sense of calm, of restoration, um, when I think about longevity or resilience or endurance, you know, I think about the fact that some of these art forms are made to endure 
And some of them are purposefully made to be impermanent. So briefly, Packet uh, Congo are kind of in between. You know, they, they can last for a good amount of time, but eventually their colors fade. They're made with cloth and fabric. Um, so eventually they fade. There are metalworks that have sacred symbols in them that are made to endure, you know, in Haiti, for instance. But then there are Veve, which are the sacred symbols that create portals to the divine realm. They're very much like mandalas. And Haitian Veve, each one is done for a different spirit, and each spirit has many varieties, but they're sacred symbols that are associated with that particular divine energy, and they serve as portals. They're made on the earthen floor in cornmeal and flour. Why? Because the understanding is as the portal is opened and spirits can come to visit in ceremony, to give advice, to come dance with devotees, the portal must also eventually be closed so that spirits can return to their homeland, to the ancestral world. And so they are danced over in ceremony. So they're purposefully made to be impermanent. So I think that's a really interesting relationship to thinking about, you know, resilience or endurance. Wow. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And, and, it kind of leads into our next question, um, which comes from an email exchange that we had had and um, thinking about just, and now dude, from your article too, my, my eyes are open to even more that Haitian people have experienced just throughout history, not just the most recent earthquakes, but the natural disasters in 2008, I believe it was, and then really being affected by white supremacy throughout the, most of the history of Haiti, it sounds like. Um, wondering if you could talk about, or if you'd feel comfortable sharing about responsive religious leaders and artists and the play of art and ritual and sacred objects in that healing and overcoming and enduring, as you would call it. Absolutely. With regard to uh, religious responses, I think it's really important here to mention. So I'm teaching a class right now called Voodoo Not Voodoo, Media Distortions and Lived Religion in Haiti. And I've been really appreciative of the chance to process some of the heaviness that Haiti has been experiencing this year. Um, you know, we had the assassination of the president take place in July of 2021. On August 14th, there was a 7.0 magnitude earthquake that struck the south of Haiti. Um, two days later, Hurricane Grace swept through. And most recently, we've been dealing with political instability, rise of kidnappings, and just great insecurity, which is extremely challenging. And, you know, in 2010, Pat Robertson went on, you know, national television and said, well, Haiti experienced this earthquake because they made a pact with the devil. And what he was referring to, <laughs> yes, what he was referring to uh, was uh, the Haitian Vodou religious ceremony of 1791. I mentioned that Haiti was the first black republic. It gained its independence in 1804 after a 13-year civil, uh, excuse me, war for independence against France. In 1791, what led the movement, there had been many insurrections, but what finally sort of galvanized the entire nation, there was a ceremony in a sacred forest known as Boacaima. August 14th, in fact, was the date, 1791. So 230 years later, we experienced this earthquake. But um, in 1791, August 14th, there was a, a religious ceremony that took place in uh, the woods known as Boacaima in Haiti, in northern Haiti. And uh, it was a multi-religious ceremony. You had Cecile Fatima, who was a mambo or a priestess who was leading uh, prayers. There was um, a 
revolutionary leader known as Dutty Bukman, who was of Jamaican and African descent um, and who had come to Haiti as an enslaved person and who possibly may have been Muslim himself, Bukman coming from the term man of the book, meaning one who reads the Quran. Um, and so you have this interfaith religious solidarity experience and community building, um, people swearing an oath to fight for their liberty, for their freedom until the death. And this is what he was referring to, Pat Robinson was referring to as a pact with the devil, you know, and I, I think here it's really important to think about religion and science, you know, no, Haiti did not experience an earthquake because of a pact with the devil. Haiti experienced an earthquake because it's on a fault line. <laughs> right? Let's be very clear. I am a woman of faith myself, but we know exactly why Haiti experienced an earthquake. Haiti has experienced horrific ramifications and repercussions for so many things in its historical period because of white supremacy, as you mentioned, Franny, right? Because of colonialism and imperialism, right? Um, and so when this earthquake happened most recently, I think that that's one of the first things that comes to my mind. It's really important that people understand that this is not Haiti's fault, right? It is a fault line, rather, that oh. Haiti is unfortunate to, you know, not share with the Dominican Republic. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about the responses of religious community members and artists, um, I'll give two quick anecdotes. The first one is after the 2010 earthquake, um, my, uh, one of the priestesses whom I work with, you know, one of my interlocutors, uh, who is a well-known high priestess of the tradition, Mambo Marimod Evans, held a vigil. You know, I mean, it's what you would call a vigil in the West, but it was a prayer circle. And she gathered with members of her temple and her community. They prayed. A lot of different vaudouisans, a lot of different vaudou devotees gathered together to, you know, honor the dead who had been um, killed and whose bodies had not been claimed. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in all traditions, it's so important that the dead are cared for so that they can, you know, transition to the afterlife, wherever that might be in the cosmology of that tradition, so that they can transition safely, smoothly, right? And so that their names can still be honored in, you know, by the community and by family members. And so many people who had been killed in the earthquake, and this was true of this earthquake in the south of Haiti as well this year, you know, they were never found. And so their spirits could be wandering. So I know a lot of religious leaders, including this priestess whom I work with, who you know conducted prayer circles so that they could gather together divine energy to ensure a smooth passage to what is known as Afrikine, the realm of the ancestors and spirits. Um, and you know they didn't just do this for Vodouizan; they they prayed for entire communities, of course. Um, in the realm of the arts, uh, there are incredible works of art that have emerged out of the devastating earthquake of 2010 and most recently 2021. Um, there is an artist known as Evelyn Alcid who has done some magnificent beaded, sequined ritual flags, portraits of the earthquake itself and the spirits coming to save victims of the earthquake. And I have a, a dear friend, um, and Milan Constant is another amazing artist who has done wonderful work portraying um, art of the earthquake in 2010. One of the artists whom I work with today, I consider him a sacred artist as well. His name is Ronald Edmond. He has done a rendition of the 2021 earthquake in a similar vein, you know, portraying the devastation of this mortal realm, but also the spirits coming to aid those who are calling out in prayer. And I think that, you know, these are ways that we can, I call this, you know, the art of natural disaster, 
Mm. How do we process such devastation? It's difficult to say, but I think that the arts are one way that we can not only create an archive of different historical periods, and that also includes atrocities, but also modes of processing, you know, to be faced with the heaviness of an earthquake in, you know, beads and sequins is to experience uh, a trauma. Absolutely. It is to be reminded of a trauma, but it is also to be reminded that the spirits never leave one side. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so powerful for people to be reminded of. It's very easy to lose faith when in a tradition, you know, especially in times of crisis. But this is also a time when people turn to their faith for strength, for courage, for resilience, if we will, or for endurance or longevity. Yeah. I'm, I, I have several like follow-up questions <laughs> floating through my head. Um, so if I, do you mind if I yeah. ask it from yes. one is, and um, I think it's worth religious tradition seems very just like deeply enmeshed within the way of life in, if I might say Haitian culture, Haitian, Haitian community, how might it have been different? How might this enduring have been different if there wasn't that such deep religious tradition enmeshed within most parts of life? Oh, I mean, that's a hypothetical question that I think would be so difficult to answer um, because, you know, I don't wish to generalize, um, but largely speaking, you know, when people are talking about the age of secularism, let me tell you, they ain't talking about Africa. <laughs> they, they ain't talking about Latin America. Okay. They are talking about Europe and they're talking about North America because the reality is religion remains absolutely central in the African diaspora, in Africa. And, you know, it may look different for new generations. That's true. Um, but I don't even think that, you know, those questions are of top of mind mm. for most people of African descent because religion is so central. Even if they don't necessarily consider themselves belonging to a specific church or a specific mosque or a specific temple, right? It's yeah. just... A, a part of philosophy, if you will. It's a part of the world view or the world sense, you know, of how you move through the world. I really like the definition of religion by Charles H. Long, um, who has recently passed a historian of religion who explained that religion is ultimately about, it's religion is orientation in the ultimate sense. Mm -hmm. How you come under, how you come to understand your place in the world and in community right, in the cosmos, as well as in this mortal realm. And I think that's so profound because orientation is very broad, right? That can mean things like dance and, you know, ritual prayers, as well as things like the faith that you have um, that that guides you through and that roots you. I, I'm, I'm humbled by just the difference here that you're mm -hmm. describing of African and Africana religions that it is, it's hard to imagine what life would be like without this deeply enmeshed tradition coming from on my end white male like all these privileged identities only live in north america mm -hmm. and feeling this listlessness and this being mm -hmm. lost and i think it's one of the reasons why i went to school for theology and ministry to find that again for myself 
in that deeply enmeshed religious tradition in my own life. So thank you for shedding light on that. That's really powerful. Also, just on the other hand, when you were talking, I just related so much, even though I was born here and I grew up here. My parents were both, they're both from Somalia. They grew up there and they moved here when they were like in their 20s. And just that question too, I was like thinking about it and I was like, I don't know what my life would be like without having that faith because that's just Mm. all I grew up with. And it's like not even a question of, what my life would be like without it because it's just especially in my culture it's just like the religion is your way of life and wow. there's no way of separating it absolutely thank you both <laughs> <laughs> i just feel like i just need to take a second to take it all in like yeah i'm moved thank you and this is just switching gears a little bit but we saw that you were teaching a class called art of the gods sacred arts of the black atlantic and from what we understand you're working on publishing a book by a similar name. Um, and so we were just wondering, what are you hoping that Boston College students and just readers in general take away from this book? And what will they take into their everyday life and work as they move forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess this is a bit of a plug for the classes that I'm <laughs> teaching in the spring. So I'll be teaching Art of the Gods in the spring, uh, which is called Art of the Gods, Sacred Arts of the Black Atlantic. I'll be teaching a course called We Wear the Mask, which is a masquerade course. And I'll also be teaching this course that I'm currently teaching, Voodoo Not Voodoo, Media Distortions and Lived Religion. And I say all of that to say that I, I seek different objectives in my different courses, but there are some things that remain a sort of thread line through all of the courses that I teach, whether it's in art history or theology, and all of these courses are always cross-listed with African and African diasporic studies. Um, some of those themes that I really want my students to walk away with are understandings. I mean, we'll start real basic. Africa is not a country. Africa <laughs> is a continent with 55 plus nations, right? And I, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not joking because that's really important. And you will meet adults <laughs> with degrees and lots of folks who are very important and think very highly of themselves who, you know, will say, oh, I went to Paris and I went to Cambodia and I went to Africa. Where did you go in Africa? <laughs> Can you be a bit more specific, please? You know, so I think that really understanding the complexities of African cultures, African religious traditions, African arts is extremely important to me. Understanding that African cultures continue to evolve and change. They are not static. They are not stuck in a primitive time, quote unquote. Um, But also traditions from the African continent persist outside of the continent in the African diaspora, in countries like Haiti and Cuba and Brazil and the United States and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, even though some folks feel a little bit less comfortable claiming their blackness because of Afrophobia, right? Because of anti-blackness sentiments. But it's really important that we understand how these legacies and traditions live on. Um, With regards to the arts, I think that one of the things I'm really interested in having my students take away from their classes is from a perspective of a museum, you know, these objects belong in museums so Mm. that they can tell stories to people who don't have a chance to travel. Um, There are issues that come up though, when you're talking about sanctified objects that have been blessed, that have been stolen from the continent because 90% of African art exhibited in museums is outside of the continent. That is outrageous. It's positively outrageous. And so we have to think about tough issues like what would restitution look like? What would repatriation and rematriation of these arts look like? Could that look like a social justice in a 21st century context? 
you know, I have some brilliant students who have thought about really creative solutions. Like, why don't we 3D print these objects, <laughs> keep those in museums and send the real objects home, you know? And I think this is brilliant. Why not? That makes for an even cooler wall panel on the museum, right? We sent the real artifacts home to where they belong since we stole them. We've sent back money for people to establish museums since we've been profiting off of these objects for hundreds of years. And now you have a 3D object that you can actually touch here in the museum. Great. <laughs> you know, so I'm interested in my students understanding that Africana religious traditions are not devil worship. They are about honoring your ancestors. They are about respect for the environment and living in sustainable harmony with the world around us. They are about uh, creating a sense of rhythm and vibrancy in one's life in terms of recognizing your individual purpose, mm -hmm. but your sense of belonging to a larger community, whatever that community may be, whether that's the community into which you're born and your family, whether that's your chosen community and your chosen family. And so those are some of the things that I feel are really most important for my students to take away from my classes. Um, I'm just the, the vulnerability in teaching a class like that and engaging in a class like that. Um, this, another aside question doesn't have to go in if you're uncomfortable with it, but have you met resistance in that course to what you're teaching and facing this vulnerability and belonging to self and community? And, and if you do, or if you ever do, like, how do you face that resistance that might come to you? Well, thank you for that question. And I definitely feel comfortable sharing. Um, by and large, I feel very grateful because I've met very little resistance, to be honest. I think that the greatest resistance that I meet is students who are just a little checked out. <laughs> you know, my courses fulfill uh, requirements for cultural diversity and arts core. Um, and every once in a while, you know, I recognize that, you know, you, you, you are not always able to reach all students. You know, I have some students who I think have, you know, signed up for the course because they wanted to fulfill a core rec. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm always happy to have students who are interested in their core rec because they still chose my course. Um, but sometimes it's a little hard when, you know, you see them disengaged. But what I will say is that I've been overwhelmed by the reception of the vast majority of my students, some of whom I don't think thought they would be so transformed by these courses. You know, I've had students in my religion classes who have said things like, you know, I walked away from the church because my brother is gay and I saw the way that he was mistreated and I am so humbled to find traditions where there's gender fluidity, where there's acceptance of different sexual orientations, where even the spirits themselves express gender fluidity, you know, and they felt really moved by that. I've had students say, you know, to me that they have had conversations with their elders about traditions that they didn't even know were still practiced um, and that this has been an opportunity for them to reconnect to their ancestry it's been an opportunity for them to reconnect to their blackness, you know, as Dominican students or Puerto Rican students or Cuban students who feel like their family sometimes was less comfortable identifying as black. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there has been a lot of beauty in the vulnerability. And I think that the projects that have impressed me the most are those that are hands-on and so i always have my students do you know a hands-on project whether that's creating you know a, a podcast or a short form video um, most recently i had students in my spring class intro to african arts take um you know photographs from the museum's collection at the mcmullen museum and write about it and they had been practicing with an instagram account that i have for my students they've been practicing writing about visual art analysis um, but their final project required them to research a photograph 
that we had not studied in class and to conduct research, you know, using resources from class and also outside research resources. Um, and I told them I was so proud of them. I was really emotionally moved. And I said, you know, if I had told you that you were going to work with a photograph that you had never seen of a culture, maybe you had never heard of on the African continent and have to describe with thoughtfulness and insight, the ritual meaning, the ceremonial meaning, and you know, the aesthetic value of this work, I think that you all would have told me that like I was out of my mind, you know, and you all have done it and have surpassed my expectations. And I think that they were really proud to be able to say like, wow, these are skill sets that I've built, you know? Um, so I think by and large, I've been very fortunate. I felt very connected to my students. And I think, you know, I think y'all are smart, you know, y'all students are smart. I think you can tell when somebody comes to the table with a certain degree of genuineness, you know, this work is important to me, not just intellectually, but it's important to me as a black woman. It's important to me as a Haitian woman. It's important to me as a Haitian and African-American woman who's lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know? So I think that they can tell that authenticity. And I think a lot of students at BC are interested in giving their all when they see you giving their all. Mm. Oh, I have tons of questions. <laughs> <laughs> in respect of her time, I think we should move on. <laughs> so just, Final question, if you yeah. don't have anything else to add, but what is your call to action for students and just the Boston College community in general? Let me start by saying that I think calls to action can look very different for different people. Mm -hmm. And it may sound cliche, but I think it's really important for people to follow their instinct and follow their gut. And if you are miserable doing what you're doing, but you're making a lot of money, you will still be miserable. <laughs> you know that. Yeah know that recognize that and think about what that does for yourself and for your soul and for your spirit and for your community and so i really try to encourage my students you know if you've got to go off and you know work for the man to make some money for home for some time do it you know if you've got to do it but don't lose yourself in doing so and really prioritize what it means to be a present member of your community to pursue the things that you love and that are meaningful to you, because I think that that is something no one can take away from you. You know, mm -hmm. if you are doing something that's meaningful, not just because you find it interesting, but because it's trying to make this world different, you know, it's trying to restore a sense of our humanity and trying to increase a sense of belonging that no one can take that from you. That's something that belongs just to, you know, yourself, but that is really a gift to others. And so I think if I could say a call to action, I would say, know where you come from, mm. right? Really spend some time with your elders, spend some time with your juniors, really know your roots, because you get to take that with you wherever you go. And undoubtedly, that perspective that you bring is so much a fingerprint to you you know nobody else comes with that exact story that exact perspective um so recognize that that is a gift but stay true to who you are and recognize that like we have a lot of work to do in this world and it's going to be up to this next generation i really believe that this next generation is so exciting you know you you gen zers are doing some really exciting <laughs> things. so i'm hoping to see the world that you all you know push for and work for continue to expand our possibilities and give us a bit more sense of who we are and why we do what we do is not just hmm, 
it's not just a thinking exercise, mm. you know, it can really make our lives a whole lot more meaningful when we're out here being our authentic, true selves. Thank you for the reminder of returning to ourselves and, and returning to our roots and carrying that forward with us. And like you just, you had said um, that as a professor, your students can sense that you're passionate about the subject and you're genuine and this comes from a deeper place. I, I, I felt that here too today in our conversation. So thank you so much for being with us and for sharing that with us today. Absolutely. Thank you again for the invitation. It's uh, These are really thoughtful questions and I'm looking forward to tuning into this episode and also to checking out the other episodes. This is Rooted in Resilience. Thank you for joining us in our conversation with Dr. Kira Malika Daniels who really made me stop and think about my definition of resilience. Our words and language are so powerful, and I often take for granted the words we use to describe peoples and communities. I forget to ask myself, who do our words really serve? To whom are we giving power and from whom are we taking it away? Who are we making invisible in our definitions of resilience? She reminded me that resilience is much more complex than we might initially think. And perhaps it is more impactful to think about how we prioritize wellness and wholeness in the face of tremendous adversity. She also introduced me to the sacredness that is often so deeply rooted in cultural and religious tradition that serves as a vital force for communities, such as the Haitian and Haitian American community facing preventable and unpreventable adversity. Join us next time with our guest, Janine Kramer, mom, social worker, and our fearless leader in health promotion and alcohol and drug education and prevention as she takes us through her definition of resilience. See you soon.